The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Sex, lies, and taxes. This is Thursday, December 7th, 2017. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through my links for Amazon.com, my other sponsors, and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Al Franken quitting the Senate. Trump tampers with the delicate peace in the Middle East. And the Russia investigation has just crossed Trump's red line. We'll get to all of it right after what's happening with your taxes. The House and Senate have agreed to make widespread changes in our federal tax law, and 62% of us, those not in the top 20% of earners, will pay more taxes. With the clock ticking on the psychological deadline of Christmas, the two houses are expected to work out their differences, and Trump has said he'll sign whatever they send him, sight unseen. And although they say they'll work out those differences, there is a chance the final bill won't win the majority in the Senate as it did with the Senate's own original version. The vast majority of economists say that even in a best-case scenario, Republicans are adding a trillion dollars to the deficit they have argued for years so fiercely to reduce. They justify this, claiming the bill will pay for itself through economic growth. Republicans say companies will use their tax savings to add jobs and raise wages. The vast majority of companies, the big ones already making record profits, say they do not intend to add jobs with that money, but rather hand it over to their stockholders. It's an economic theory better known as trickle-down economics, a Republican favorite for about 30 years. And each time it's been tried over those 30 years, it has never worked. But Republicans were in a corner. Their campaign donors were telling them they wouldn't get another dime unless they passed a corporate tax cut. So the extra-motivated Republicans passed their tax bill at 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning, complete with illegible notes scribbled in the margins as part of a 500-page bill that no one had read. It passed by two votes and only after some last-minute deal-making between Republican lawmakers and their leaders. The corporate tax cuts are permanent under the Republican plan. Tax cuts for working Americans are only temporary. Under the plan in the first few years, some middle-class taxpayers would pay less, some will pay more. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says the bill also hurts people making under seventy-five grand with cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and in the Affordable Care Act. And under the Senate plan, in seven to ten years, all taxpayers, except the very rich, will pay more, while corporate taxes drop from 35 to 20 percent permanently. Small wonder the Dow Jones hit a record-high 24,000 mark as it became clear Wall Street would get its big tax cuts. In 2025, the individual tax breaks dry up, except for the people already the most wealthy in America. 90% of the tax cuts go to Americans in the top 20% income bracket. Wealthier Americans also get the biggest deductions for private school tuitions. Salivating over government deregulation, the Dow has climbed 6,000 points since Trump took office. That's a 25% bubble. In the words of one economist, the bigger the bubble, the bigger the burst. 53% of us disapprove of the Republican tax plan, and fewer than one in three supports it still. The Republicans press on. 64% of us tell Quinnipiac pollsters they believe the Republican plan will benefit the wealthy the most. And 61% of us believe it favors the rich at the expense of the middle class. But the Republican tax bill does more than just change the tax law. 
The Senate version, unlike the House version, repeals the Obamacare requirement that everyone have insurance or pay a penalty. 13 million people would be left uninsured by that change. Medical deductions would be drastically cut. Mortgage interest deductions would be drastically cut. The bill opens up wildlife refuge land in Alaska for oil drilling and tax breaks for offshore drilling around the country. By adding to the deficit, the stage has been set for Republicans to move on to cuts in Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. The bill even opens the door to declaring an unborn fetus a person by allowing college savings accounts for that fetus. And then the bill did something to kill the very jobs its backers hoped to create. One part of the bill lets businesses write off 100% of the money they plan to spend on robots automation to replace human workers, a 100% deduction for business. It gives no tax breaks for retraining those displaced workers, but it does increase productivity for business. A consulting firm estimates as many as 800 million workers around the world will lose their jobs to machines within the next 13 years. Fast food workers demanding a living wage will become a thing of the past. The lowest level office workers will go with them. About 375 million workers would have to be retrained. The countries to be hit hardest, China, India, Japan, and the United States. Friday, December 1st, 2017 will be remembered as the day Republicans pushed through a tax bill that was hatched in the dark. It will also be remembered as perhaps the most pivotal day in the Trump-Russia investigation. It should also be remembered as the day Trump's Twitter feed got unusually quiet. It was the day Trump's former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about a meeting with the Russian ambassador. The meeting was legal. The lying was not. Facing a federal felony, Flynn agreed to testify against individuals in the Trump administration, the campaign, and the transition, starting with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. For the first time, the investigation had reached into the White House itself and into Trump's family. And the lesser charge for Flynn means he is, and perhaps has been, cooperating with Robert Mueller's investigators, and that Flynn has information that is very, very useful to the investigation. Those around Trump were already arranging changes in U.S. foreign policy while Barack Obama was still president. Trump's top people were urging Russia not to retaliate against U.S. sanctions for election interference, indicating the incoming president would eliminate those sanctions, plus the ones the U.S. had imposed when Russia took part of Ukraine by force. Prosecutors revealed in court papers that Flynn was directed by a very senior member of the transition team to talk with the Russians about a U.N. resolution condemning Israel. Trump's lawyers think that very senior member is Jared Kushner. Now there's been another Flynn bombshell. A witness has told the ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee that at the same moment Trump was giving his inaugural address, Mike Flynn was texting a business associate that their plan to build nuclear power plants in the Mideast with Russian money was, quote, good to go. And then Flynn added that the U.S. sanctions against Russia would be, quote, ripped up as soon as Trump got to the Oval Office. A long-standing theory has been that Russia wanted those sanctions lifted so badly it worked to bash Clinton and elevate Trump in the campaign. That is the tit-for-tat that may have led to collusion, or conspiracy as the law prefers, between the Trump campaign and the Russians. 
In Mike Flynn, the Russians may have found someone looking to get rich, perhaps someone easily enticed by Russian oligarchs. Over the objections of the Trump administration, Congress has made it extremely difficult for Trump to lift those Russian sanctions. Investigators are also targeting former Fox News personality K.T. McFarland. She was another top official in the Trump transition team, along with former Republican Chairman Reince Priebus. McFarland, who's close to Trump, is allegedly the person who told Flynn what to say to the Russians. She also wrote in an email that the sanctions against Russia would make it harder for Trump to make nice with Russia, which, in her words, has just thrown the U.S. election to him. Democrats in the Senate are now putting on hold hearings on McFarland's confirmation as Trump's choice for ambassador to Singapore until she answers their questions about communications between Mike Flynn and that Russian ambassador. McFarland told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee she was not aware of any such communications, but new court documents show she was. The New York Times reports McFarland's emails indicate Mike Flynn was in close contact with multiple senior members of the Trump organization, not just Kushner and McFarland. That leaves former White House strategist Steve Bannon, former RNC Chairman Reince Priebus, and transition leader Mike Pence. Yesterday brought the long-awaited testimony of Donald Trump Jr. about his dad's misleading statement that played down the Trump Tower meeting between Jr., Manafort, and Kushner and a handful of Russians. They were at that meeting expecting to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. Trump Jr. was not on Air Force One when his dad's statement was drafted there, but he told the House and Senate Intelligence Committees he did speak with White House aide Hope Hicks about the best way to respond to news reports about that Trump Tower meeting. Trump Jr. says he did not speak directly with his dad, but that Hope Hicks did speak directly with the president, who spoke on his son's behalf when the story broke about that Trump Tower meeting, a meeting that's also a target in the Mueller probe. In eight hours of closed-door testimony yesterday, Donald Trump Jr. refused to answer the committee's question about whether he had discussed that Trump Tower meeting with his father. It was a week ago today that the House Intelligence Committee took Attorney General Jeff Sessions behind closed doors. The lawmakers were not happy with what they heard, or more precisely, what they didn't hear. Sessions had also refused to answer questions about conversations he'd had with Trump about then-FBI Director James Comey. Sessions would not say whether Trump had asked him to hinder the Russia investigation in any way. He refused to answer. Sessions would not answer questions about contacts between Trump aides and the Russians while Sessions was a campaign advisor. Sessions did not invoke the president's executive privilege. He did not plead the Fifth Amendment. He simply refused to answer the questions. Sessions' Justice Department has not been completely cooperative with the House Intelligence Committee investigation. Investigation lawmakers are not happy. Both the special counsel and the congressional investigators are clearly looking for and finding evidence the president obstructed justice. On the same day as Sessions' lack of testimony, the New York Times published evidence that over the summer, Trump pressured Republicans to end the Russia probes. His targets included the head of the Intelligence Committee, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and a half dozen others in the Senate. Trump was, at the time, publicly berating Jeff Sessions for recusing himself from the Russia investigation. As this week began, the top Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dianne Feinstein, said there appears to be enough evidence here now to charge Trump with obstruction of justice. I see it, she said, 
in the hyper-frenetic attitude of the White House, the comments every day, the continual tweets, end quote. And I see it most importantly, said Feinstein, in the firing of Director Comey, and it is my belief that is because he did not agree to lift the cloud of the Russia investigation. That, says Feinstein, is obstruction of justice, which is exactly what her committee has been investigating. Of course, it's impossible for a president to obstruct justice, at least according to Trump's personal lawyer. The lawyer says that's because Trump is the nation's top law enforcement officer and also free to express his opinions. Legal experts call that position foolish. It certainly didn't work for Richard Nixon, who held that same belief, and it definitely didn't work for Bill Clinton, who was also impeached for obstruction by lying about Monica Lewinsky. Right now, impeachment of Trump is not an option. Yesterday, the House voted overwhelmingly against a resolution that Trump be impeached. Many Democrats voted with the Republican majority. But I've gotten ahead of the story, which began over the weekend with another Trump Twitter storm. Trump tweeted he wasn't worried about anything Flynn might say to prosecutors, that there was no collusion, and that the FBI should be investigating Hillary Clinton instead. Trump had held his tongue on Friday, but tweeted the next day the start of a long series of comments, which included, I had to fire General Flynn because he lied to the vice president and the FBI. Suddenly, Trump seemed to admit he knew before firing Flynn that Flynn had lied to the FBI and then allegedly asked Comey the next day if Comey could go easy on Flynn. That would mean Trump knew of the FBI investigation and, upon confirming that, tried to quash it. Trump also bizarrely tweeted his actions during the transition were lawful. There was nothing to hide, even while admitting Flynn had been caught in a lie. In his weekend tweet storm, Trump reveled in the double punch of news that had Bob Mueller firing one of his FBI investigators for sending anti-Trump text, and ABC News suspended a veteran reporter for mistakenly reporting the Flynn plea deal had him testifying against Trump. Jeff Ross's report seemed to cause a brief dip in the stock market, and Trump later tweeted investors should sue Ross for losing their money. About the biased FBI agent, Trump tweeted, now it all starts to make sense, even though it's really actually evidence that Mueller won't stand for anything less than an impartial investigation. Trump tweeted that the FBI is in tatters and that its credibility was the worst in history. That angered the man Trump's chosen to replace James Comey. The current FBI director, Christopher Wray, fired off an email to his employees Monday, calling those employees dedicated professionals, adding, it is truly an honor to represent you. But the enveloping Russia investigation had driven Trump back to Twitter before sunrise on Sunday. I never asked Comey to stop investigating Flynn, he tweeted defensively. Just more fake news, another Comey lie, he tweeted. Comey's notes have Trump asking Comey to see his way clear to letting this go, letting Flynn go, end quote. And Trump admitted on national television that he had fired Comey because of the Russia investigation. But the tweets that got the most attention were the ones in which Trump seemed to be testifying against himself on obstruction of justice. And then this happened. Also on Sunday, Trump's personal lawyer, John Dowd, chimed in. Dowd revealed it was he who had written that tweet on Trump's account, which raises a host of questions, including how or why was Dowd tweeting as Donald Trump, and how often has someone other than Trump done this? The White House has insisted if it comes from Trump's Twitter feed, it's an official statement. 
About this, the White House has no comment. Legal experts called the tweet sloppy at best. Legal experts are appalled that Trump's personal lawyer would endanger his client in that way. Quoting Dowd now, I'm out of the tweeting business. I did not mean to break news. But by Sunday night, Dowd was still trying to talk his way out of Trump's or his damning tweet. The Washington Post says a source close to the White House calls the Saturday tweet a screw-up of historic proportions. And even if lawyer Dowd did write the incriminating tweets, he speaks for Trump as Trump's lawyer. And that is the same lawyer who now claims a president cannot be charged with obstruction of justice. John Dowd is saying no one is above the law except for Donald Trump. Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow has gone so far as to say that even collusion with Russia is not a crime. Quoting Sekulow, for something to be a crime, there has to be a statute you claim is being violated. There is no crime of collusion. As an attorney, Sekulow surely knows there is such a crime as conspiracy with a foreign government against the United States. And a new piece of evidence came to light this week as the New York Times reported that a conservative operative close to the National Rifle Association told a Trump campaign advisor last year that he could arrange a meeting between Trump and Vladimir Putin. The email to Trump campaign advisor Rick Dearborn bears the subject line, Kremlin Connection. In the email, the operative asked Dearborn to pass that along to Jeff Sessions, who was Trump's foreign policy advisor and Dearborn's boss. The operative wrote that Russia was, quote, quietly but actively seeking a dialogue with the U.S. and would try to use the NRA convention to make first contact. Trump was speaking at that convention last year in Louisville, Kentucky. All of this while various Russian operatives were trying to connect with the Trump campaign. Russians even contacted an activist who promoted veteran and Christian causes to try to set up a connection. The Russians knew the history of Republican support for religion, veterans, and guns. Paul Manafort may have to keep wearing his ankle bracelet it was just a week ago today that former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort struck a deal with the special prosecutor's office that would have allowed Manafort to ditch the GPS ankle bracelet and move about more freely while he awaits trial for money laundering and failing to register as an agent for a foreign government. Even after that deal was struck, the bracelet and the travel restrictions remained in place as a judge pondered whether to approve the agreement between Manafort and Mueller. But then, Mueller's people found out that while he's been under house arrest, Manafort's been in close contact with a Russian, closely connected with Russian intelligence. And wait, there's more. Together, Manafort and the Russian were co-writing an op-ed piece defending Manafort's work for a Russian-backed political party in Ukraine. And they planned to send that letter to the editor under an assumed name. The judge in Manafort's case had previously ordered both sides not to talk about the case publicly, which is clearly what Manafort allegedly was preparing to do. Manafort's lawyers now say they will see to it that the op-ed piece never gets published, since it would defy the judge's gag order. The judge is now aware of what Manafort's been up to during his home confinement. The chances the bracelet comes off are zero at this point, and there is now a chance Manafort could be placed behind bars while he awaits his trial next year. And now, by following the money, special counsel Robert Mueller has crossed a line Trump warned him not to cross. Mueller's looking into Trump's business and financial dealings, even after Trump claimed Mueller would be in violation of his assignment if Mueller were to do what he's clearly doing now. 
Mueller had already expanded his probe into the White House and into Trump's family, now into Trump's finances. After using his subpoena powers, Mueller now has his hands on the records from Trump's biggest lender, Deutsche Bank, which is known to launder money for wealthy Russians. The subpoena asked for documents concerning companies and people affiliated with Trump. Deutsche Bank is also the only bank in New York that would lend money to Trump after he failed to repay his loans from other banks. And Deutsche Bank has been inexplicably generous to Trump, lending him $640 million, hundreds of millions of dollars, not from any bank except the one that launders Russian money. Mueller has now crossed Trump's red line. Will it prompt Trump to fire Bob Mueller? Stay tuned. Also, Vladimir Putin has announced he's running for re-election next year. Up next, Al Franken leaves the Senate while Roy Moore's headed there. The possible government shutdown. How Trump's endangered national monuments and Middle East peace. Along with Bob Seska, after this. Hey, look who's back, and just in time for the holidays. After a little speed bump, I'm once again asking you to do as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com, especially as the holidays draw closer. You land right on your very own Amazon page, and you get the same great prices as always. And if you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important that you go to buzzburbank.com, click on the Amazon link, and then bookmark that page to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or shopping Amazon for the first time, using and bookmarking that link delivers a small commission to this podcast. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door and in two days or less for Prime members. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership along with music, books, and more. And please use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. And I thank you. Alabama Republicans agree with Trump that a man accused of sexual misconduct with minors would make a better senator than any Democrat. In that Senate election this coming Tuesday, Moore has a six-point lead over Democratic candidate Doug Jones, despite the accusations of nine women, eight of whom say a 30-something Roy Moore pursued them while they were in their teens, one as young as 14. A majority of Alabama's Republican voters support Roy Moore, even after one of the women produced evidence that indicates Moore was lying when he claimed this week he does not know any of the nine women. Most Alabama Republicans simply don't believe the allegations against Moore. A third of them say they're definitely false, and another third say they're probably false. Even some voters who believe the women don't trust the press, and they don't trust the timing of the revelations that unfolded in the midst of a political campaign. Once it became clear that Moore was the people's choice, despite the sexual misconduct with minors allegations, Donald Trump was all in, throwing Moore his official endorsement, the one he'd withheld until the coast was clear. And with a week before the vote, the Republican National Committee again threw its endorsement and its financial support into Moore's campaign, following Trump's lead. The Republican Party, which is now Trump's party, had gotten its marching orders, get more elected, because the votes are needed in the Senate for, as Trump outlined, stopping crime and illegal immigration, building the wall, crushing abortion, changing the Veterans Administration, and supporting the military and 
the Second Amendment. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had also withdrawn support from Moore at first, was back to saying, let the people of Alabama decide. The Republican Party, molded in the image of Donald Trump, now supports candidates accused of sexual misconduct with minors. That is not something that history or voters in the rest of the country are likely to forget. And while a Republican is apparently being swept into the Senate in spite of these allegations, other lawmakers are being forced out of Washington. Minnesota Senator Al Franken was expected to resign in a mid-morning speech on the Senate floor today after more women came forward to accuse him of inappropriate behavior. Franken had repeatedly apologized and called for his own ethics investigation, but the allegations kept coming, at least one of which Franken fiercely denies. But Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and a handful of other prominent women in Congress called for Franken's resignation. And then more senators, women and men, weighed in for a total of nearly three dozen fellow senators calling on Franken to resign. After the sixth accuser, Gillibrand said, enough is enough. The remaining two years of Franken's term will be served by someone appointed by the state's Democratic governor. The longest-serving African-American in Congress retired Tuesday. Democrat John Conyers said he was leaving for health reasons, not because five former employees have accused him of sexual harassment. Conyers, a Korean War vet, civil rights activist, and co-founder of the Congressional Black Caucus, denies all the allegations vehemently. Conyers has endorsed his eldest son to replace him, but a police record for violence has the son thinking he may not want to face the scrutiny of a campaign. Conyers' great-nephew, State Senator Ian Conyers, says he will run for that job. The senior Conyers is, meanwhile, the first Washington lawmaker to step down over sexual harassment allegations. Al Franken appears to be the second. Texas Republican Joe Barton isn't quitting, but he says he won't run for re-election to Congress. Barton broke no laws, but sexted with a constituent, after which a photo of him nude turned up on the Internet. Another Texas Republican, Blake Farenthold, is under pressure to quit after it was revealed that he had used $84,000 in taxpayer money to settle a sexual harassment claim by his former communications director. Back on the other side of the aisle, House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi has called on Nevada's Ruben Cahoon to resign after a report showing that he'd sexually harassed a congressional aide during his campaign last year. Pelosi was quick to call for Cahoon's resignation after being criticized about her slow and defensive response to the early Conyers accusations. The House Ethics Committee is now looking at all the files on all the misconduct allegations about House members and their staffs. Through that request, we've also learned that New York Democratic Congressman Eric Massa had used $100,000 of taxpayer money to settle sexual harassment claims by two of his former staffers. And Billy Bush reemerged this week to confirm it was Donald Trump who said the things we've all heard in that Access Hollywood recording of Trump bragging about grabbing women by the genitals. Bush, who laughed his way through Trump's comments at the time, stopped laughing when he lost his new dream job on the Today Show because of that tape. Trump, who was elected president despite the tape, has recently questioned whether the tape was faked, questioned whether the voice that sounds like him is really him at all. The former TV host talked about that in both an op-ed piece for the New York Times and Monday night on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. 
clearly addressing Trump, Bush said this about Trump's latest tweet claims about the recording, quote, you don't get to say that because I was there and the last 14 months of my life I've been dealing with it. You dealt with it for 14 minutes and went on to be president, end quote. Billy Bush says that is Trump on the recording and that it was Trump who said the words we have all heard for ourselves. New York's Metropolitan Opera announced this week it's investigating allegations against its famous conductor, James Levine. Levine's accused of abusing an aspiring conductor for years, starting when the young man was just 15. Two other men have made similar accusations. And the founder of Def Jam Records has resigned as CEO of Rush Communications after being accused of forcing a screenwriter to have sex with him back in 1991. Russell Simmons has also been accused of sexually assaulting a model while fellow disgraced filmmaker Brett Ratner watched. Six women have now filed a lawsuit against Oscar-winning producer Harvey Weinstein. They claim his massive system for enabling and covering up his abuses amount to racketeering. And in a poetic turn of karma, the gossip editor at the National Enquirer, Us Weekly, and other gossip rags has been accused of discussing the sex lives of female employees around the office and his own during working hours and of forcing women to watch or at least hear pornographic material. Dylan Howard is the man's name, the chief content officer for American Media, the company that owns those gossip magazines. Howard also reportedly told his female reporters to sleep with their subjects to get more gossip. Howard, who had nicknamed himself Dildo, denies the charges. Jaws dropped in Hollywood this week as an Emmy-winning TV host took on an Oscar-winning actor over allegations of sexual harassment. The actor is Dustin Hoffman, who's accused of groping a woman and making inappropriate comments to her when she was a 17-year-old intern on the set of the 1985 TV movie Death of a Salesman. Hoffman has never addressed the claims by actress Catherine Ross that he'd groped her on the set of The Graduate, nor has he addressed a writer's similar claim. This week, Hoffman shared a stage with HBO's John Oliver as the comedian hosted a panel discussion for the anniversary screening of the movie Wag the Dog at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. But soon, the discussion was simply between Oliver and this long-revered actor, Oliver made it clear he was unsatisfied with Hoffman's weakly worded apology. It's that kind of response that pisses me off, said Oliver, to Dustin Hoffman in front of an audience. And more than once, a substantial part of the audience applauded Oliver. And in Hollywood, jaws dropped. I can't leave certain things unaddressed, said Oliver. The easy way is to not bring anything up. Unfortunately, that leaves me at home later at night hating myself. Add this to your list of things that never happened until 2017. Russia has been barred from the Olympics, the upcoming 2018 Winter Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea, for doping its athletes at the Sochi Games and for not doing enough to keep the doping from happening again. The Russian national anthem will not be played. There will be no Russian flags. Russian officials won't be allowed to attend. Individual Russian athletes will be allowed to compete, but they'll be required to wear neutral uniforms, and they are preemptively disqualified for winning any medals for Russia. There will also be a special ceremony to reassign medals that were awarded to Russians in Sochi. Those athletes now 
disqualified retroactively. This has never happened before, but 2017 is the year for that. Peace in the Middle East has been endangered, and nearly 70 years of American policy have been overturned now that Donald Trump has told Arab and Israeli leaders he plans to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. In the eyes of the U.S. and 80 other countries, Tel Aviv has served as Israel's capital, while stewardship of Jerusalem has remained in dispute, a city that's home to Jews, Muslims, and Christians. As it stands now, Jerusalem is defined as an open city. 300,000 Palestinians live inside the city limits, Palestinians on the West Bank side of Jerusalem. But now, Trump's announced the U.S. will recognize Jerusalem as the Israeli capital and that the U.S. embassy will move there in the next three or four years. The U.S. would be the first and only country to declare Jerusalem belongs exclusively to Israel. Arab leaders and many of our European allies say Trump's decision threatens to prompt new violence in that part of the world and kill any chance for a peace agreement. In the words of Turkey's deputy prime minister, Trump's reversal of U.S. policy could, quote, plunge the region and the world into fire with no end in sight. Palestinian officials have called for three days of rage. Germany and even the U.S. have warned their citizens in the region that violence is possible. American flags are being burned and the terror group Hamas is calling for an uprising because of Trump's decision. Trump's move is being condemned by France, NATO, Pope Francis, and even China. Trump's decision potentially sparks new religious warfare, although he says he's doing it in pursuit of peace. And updating the story about the sonic attacks on Americans in Cuba, doctors treating the victims say they've found brain abnormalities in the embassy workers who experienced hearing loss and other damage, changes in the white matter of their brains. U.S. officials aren't saying anything more about the attack, its consequences, or who might have been responsible. Two of our national monuments were made smaller this week in a proclamation by our current president. It has angered many, including Salon.com writer Bob Seska, who's here to hug some trees. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. The wrong done to trees, wrongs of every sort, are done in the darkness of ignorance and unbelief. For when the light comes, the heart of the people is always right. John Muir, 1938. Ever since President Lincoln signed a bill authorizing the designation of Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove of Big Trees as protected state parks under the order that the unspoiled land will, quote, be held for public use, resort, and recreation, inalienable for all time, unquote, an endless succession of villains have tried to undermine and threaten what would eventually become the National Park Service. Throughout the last 150 years, one enemy of the parks after another has risen up to dispossess the land from our collective ownership in the name of private for-profit interests to exploit and destroy it however they see fit. In most cases, the parks and the people have won the day. In other cases, such as with the damming and flooding of the Hetch Hetchy Valley, the villains have been occasionally victorious. This week, back on December 4th, President Trump joined the ranks of those villains, becoming the first president in modern history to literally shrink the boundaries of two national monuments. In this case, one monument designated by President Obama and another designated by President Clinton through the Antiquities Act, a piece of invaluable legislation signed by Teddy Roosevelt in 1906, 
allowing the president to set aside land for the enjoyment and benefit of the people without the approval of Congress. By the way, Republicans are also seeking to rewrite the Antiquities Act, making it more difficult for presidents to designate monuments in the first place. But as of today, and in accordance with Trump's order, the Bears Ears National Monument has been shrunken by 84%, from 1.4 million acres to 220,000 acres. And the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument has been reduced in size by nearly 50%. In other words, Trump just stole literally millions of acres of your American birthright, as well as the birthright of indigenous tribes in Utah. And he's handed that land over to ranchers, real estate developers, and the fossil fuel industry. In other words, Trump is selling your land to the destroyers of it. There are so many things in this world that Trump simply doesn't understand, nor will he ever understand. In this context, Trump doesn't seem to grasp that the national parks don't belong to the government. They belong to the people. They belong to you, regardless of your political party or your socioeconomic status. The government is merely the steward, holding the land in trust for all Americans. Teddy Roosevelt famously described the National Park Service as, quote, noteworthy in its essential democracy. No one is barred from visiting these nearly pristine acres of natural splendor. No one is restricted from immersing themselves in the enduring continuity of the parks, what John Muir, the grandfather of the parks, once called the hope of the world. Trump ripped a little bit of that hope away from us this week. We've had many awful and even corrupt presidents, but Trump is truly the first villain president, acting on his darkest instincts and the darkest instincts of his cult-like followers. Whether it's authorizing mining companies to poison rivers, streams, and drinking water, or whether it's allowing hunters to psychotically murder hibernating bears for some reason, or whether it's stripping millions of people, including children, of their health care, or whether it's stealing untouched and protected lands from the people. Trump appears driven to wickedness, and this list barely scratches the surface of his villainy. Past Republican presidents have certainly acted in accordance with conservative ideals, sure, but Trump goes beyond ideology and instead acts on cruel whimsy and his obsessive reversal of every Obama achievement. He's the destroyer of good things simply to watch them die, not unlike the way his children wantonly kill and mutilate exotic animals for fun. Along those lines, Trump's remarks in Utah this week were virtual greatest hits of words spoken by every enemy of the parks for the last century and a half. Absolutely nothing he said this week was new or original. From the beginning, opponents have screeched about allowing the states to have more control. They've screeched about the economic benefits of exploiting the land for development. They've screeched about presidential overreach. They've lied to the people by misrepresenting who owns the parkland. Trump unoriginally repeated every tired old anti-parks trope because he knows nothing. He also delivered a great big F.U. to the great Teddy Roosevelt, eviscerating the purpose of Roosevelt's Antiquities Act. Quote, past administrations have severely abused the purpose, spirit, and intent of a century-old law known as the Antiquities Act. This law requires that only the smallest necessary area be set aside for special protection as national monuments. Unquote. To a misanthropic real estate developer, quote, the smallest necessary area is still too much. Of course, he also included his own Trumpy gibberish to the proceedings, adding a layer of insult to injury. And I have to say, really, Trump said, talk about a very special guy that I made Secretary of Interior. Does he know the interior? He knows it. He loves it. He loves seeing it and riding on it. Ryan Zinke, who truly believes in protecting America, he is protecting America, and nobody loves it more. Ryan, 
unquote. Secretary Zinke loves riding on the interior. Hmm? Kidding aside, augmenting and protecting the parks has been a bipartisan endeavor, at least in terms of modern presidents. President Reagan added 18 parks. Bush 41 added 14 parks. Bill Clinton added 19. Bush 43 added 7. Obama added 19. Yet Trump's first move on the parks is to add nothing and instead to take away land from us. In the process, Trump has turned the parks into a political wedge issue, releasing his cult followers to join him in his opposition to the parks. Simply put, it shouldn't be this way, but there it is. More damage to the system without any particular benefit, minus adding to Trump's reputation for being an irredeemable troll. The darkness of ignorance, as John Muir once said, has descended on the White House. For now. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him, paperless, at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me there every Tuesday. Donald Trump appears to be winning when it comes to his goal of stopping new immigrants at the border and driving the undocumented out of the country. And it isn't just lawbreakers or new arrivals anymore. It's families and children. This week, the Supreme Court, turned conservative by Trump, ruled that every aspect of his six-nation Muslim ban can go into effect immediately and remain in effect until the numerous legal cases against it get wrapped up in lower courts. Then and only then will the Supreme Court rule on the ban itself. Lower courts had put a hold on the ban that included foreign family members of American citizens and anyone with a bona fide connection to the U.S., the Supreme Court's decision to remove those holds would seem to indicate the court will ultimately rule in Trump's favor, but the ACLU says the court will still have to answer its specific concerns, and the ACLU says it will continue to pursue those answers. The court has ruled in Trump's favor for now, barely a week after Trump published several undocumented anti-Muslim videos on Twitter. With the cases against the ban in appeals court this week, the Supreme Court may make its final decision before its term ends in June. And we learned this week that illegal southern border crossings are down to their lowest level in 46 years, even without Trump's big, beautiful wall. Arrests at the border are down 24% compared to last year. Many illegal crossings stopped right after the 2016 election. Potential immigrants had heard about Trump's policies. But the number of arrests of undocumented people already living in the U.S. is up by 42%, no longer confined to criminals or new arrivals, instead breaking up families. Homeland Security says even with the drop in border crossings, it still supports Trump's wall. One think tank veteran calls the wall a response to yesterday's problems. The Trump government has just told the U.N. it's backing out of an international agreement on the treatment of migrants because the protections in that agreement are, quote, inconsistent with current U.S. immigration policies. President Obama signed that agreement just last year. Trump has also pulled the U.S. out of talks in Mexico about humane ways of dealing with the millions of people fleeing war, crime, and poverty. Trump's chief of staff, John Kelly, and his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, urged the president to pull out of the deal, which also has the support of Trump's U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley. And the Trump administration turned a loss into a win this past week by arresting Jose Garcia Zarate, 
Zarate is an undocumented immigrant who'd been accused of murdering a young woman in San Francisco. Trump and others held up that case as an example of the murderers coming in from Mexico and as an argument against sanctuary cities, including San Francisco. Trump railed about the case often during the campaign. So it was an apparent defeat for Trump this week when Zarate was acquitted of the murder charge. The death was ruled accidental. But the Trump administration got the last word, arresting Zarate for his conviction on being a felon in possession of a gun. Donald Trump seems to want the government to shut down. The American people do not. The question is, who will they blame if it happens? Trump has said before, the country needs a good shutdown. Yesterday, he said it could happen this Saturday. And once again, he broadcast his pessimism that a budget deal could be struck just ahead of a meeting with Democratic leaders Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, which is back on. Congress has until Friday to pass a budget that will at least keep the government open for another two weeks. Leaders on both sides say there won't be a shutdown. Perhaps they've seen the public opinion polls that show Americans won't stand for it. A Politico poll shows that 63% of us want to shut down avoided at all costs. Democrats want to reinstate the children's health insurance program that was allowed to expire this year, leaving millions of children without health care. And 42% of us think it would be worth a government shutdown if it brought back that children's program. Trump says the sticking point, however, is immigration. And he now says that because of the Democrats' stance on immigration, a shutdown over that is possible. So if a shutdown does come because of one policy or another, the supporters of that policy will likely get the blame. Stay tuned. More than half the senators on Capitol Hill have written a letter to FCC Chairman Ajit Pai about his plans to scrap the net neutrality rules that level the playing field for online business, regardless of its size or content. But in this particular letter, these 27 senators have asked Chairman Pai to put off the FCC vote that is planned for next week. They express their concern that the public comments the commission collected online are contaminated with comments from Russian email addresses. Nearly 450,000 of the comments collected by the FCC were generated by Russian bots. Nearly 8 million comments came through the domain fakemailgenerator.com. More than 90 times, comments came from people or computers claiming to be Ajit Pai, from the chairman himself to himself. The senators who signed that letter believe the FCC might be using fake comments to justify its upcoming vote on net neutrality, and that's why those senators want the vote delayed. Terrorists on Twitter. FBI Director Christopher Wray is telling Congress the use of social media by terrorists poses an increasing threat to the U.S. because they've gotten good at it, from technology to content. Quoting Ray, these terrorist use of social media and encryption technology has made it harder to find their messages of destruction as they leave fewer footsteps and dots for us to connect. The heads of Homeland Security and counterterrorism director told Congress they agree. Social media is used by al-Qaeda and ISIS to recruit disenfranchised young people. The use of social media is behind the rental truck attack in New York City recently. These national security officials are calling for the extension of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which allows the U.S. government to tap the communications of foreigners in other countries. 
Democrats are pushing back, saying our biggest threat comes from domestic hate groups, including the death of a protester at a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville. A great deal of our conversation, says one critic, should be focused on threats from right here at home. A hero after the attack on the Pulse nightclub in Orlando last year, suburban police officer Omar Delgado is being dismissed right after Christmas. The Eatonville Police Department is letting him go just six months shy of him being vested in his pension plan. Omar Delgado has PTSD after pulling a man to safety as a gunman killed 49 people around them. That man says he would have bled to death if it hadn't been for Officer Delgado. But the department says Delgado is now unfit for duty because of his PTSD, so they're releasing him at the end of this month. The department learned of his condition after Delgado went to a department counselor for help. I guess I'm being punished, says Delgado, because I asked for help. Your sugar is trying to kill you. They finally found that Porsche, and a possum walks into a liquor store in the third and final segment up next. There's probably someone you'd like to see over the holidays, but it's just not in the cards this year. That someone is special, and a card just wouldn't be enough. So do this. Go to proflowers.com and send something that expresses your feelings in a way a gift card just can't. ProFlowers always sends us the most amazing arrangements. And when I give ProFlowers, that special someone is always impressed. Imagine their surprise when candy cane roses arrive, perfect for the holidays and December birthdays. Or a miniature Christmas tree with lights and ornaments. There are lots of choices. And no matter which ones you select for $29 or more, you get 20% off because you listen to this program. Pro Flowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back. And as always, you pick the delivery date. Again, get 20% off all bouquets of $29 or more when you go to proflowers.com and use our code REALM at checkout. That's R-E-L-M in the discount code box when you check out at proflowers.com. California Governor Jerry Brown has declared a state of emergency over the wildfire that's now burned well over 80,000 acres north of Los Angeles, one of the five major fires in Southern California. One person has died, a firefighter's been injured, and the flames show no sign of easing up. After several days of 50-mile-an-hour winds, which continue today, the flames are still 0% contained. Homes are burning in Bel Air and Brentwood. 200,000 people have been evacuated, and the 405 is closed. 200 schools are closed because of the unbreathable, smoke-filled air. Ventura County's been ravaged. Residents say they haven't seen anything like this there in 20 years. On the plus side, the hurricane season ends today, officially. Hurricanes could still occur, but they usually don't after December 7th. There were 18 storms with official names in 2017, from Tropical Storm Arlene in April to Tropical Storm Rena in November. Between those storms, six major hurricanes, five of them in August. Harvey, Irma, Jose, Lee, and Maria inside of 30 days. Together, this year's storms did nearly $370 billion in damage, most of that $202 billion here in the U.S., Congress and the current president have approved some $72 billion in hurricane relief after a stormy 2017. 
This year's flu season is already in full swing and earlier than usual. Nearly 10,000 cases have already been reported. This year's flu also appears to be more severe than last year's virus. It's the H3N2 virus, which typically does make people sicker than other strains, and it's spreading quickly. Wash your hands a lot, and if you're sick, stay home. And it's still a good idea to get a flu shot, even though this year's vaccine appears to be a poor match for this year's strain. Australia gets its flu season during our summer, and during our summer this year, Australians suffered through their winter. Their vaccine, same one we're using, was only 10% effective. For many people, even just 10% protection can make the difference between life and death. Los Angeles is about to be the biggest city in the U.S. with legal recreational marijuana. Recreational weed becomes legal in San Francisco on January 5th. This in the face of a crackdown on marijuana users under Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions. The drugstore chain CVS bought the Aetna Insurance Company. Aetna has more than 22 million customers. CVS has 9,000 locations, and a 1,000 of them already have walk-in clinics. Expect to see more clinics in more locations. You may also expect those clinics to have nurse practitioners, vaccinations, blood draws, and other basic tests, even hearing aid services. Both Aetna and CVS will save billions of dollars, which they say they'll pass along through lower health insurance prices. That will shake up the healthcare industry in a way that could benefit consumers, perhaps promoting competition. And as CVS leaves the other drugstore giant, Walgreens, in the dust, it now faces competition with Amazon, which also hopes to soon be filling prescriptions. It was over 40 years ago, August 1970, when British scientists in the sugar industry discovered a connection between sugar and high cholesterol, heart disease, and bladder cancer. They watched it happen in rats who ate a lot of sugar. Some of the rats died of heart attacks. Some died from cancer. This was not the kind of thing the sugar industry wanted to know or wanted us to know 40 years ago. And the discovery came just as the FDA was considering whether it should take a harder line on high-sugar foods. So at that time and in the 40 years that have followed, Big Sugar has done what Big Tobacco did. Both industries buried and kept buried scientific data proving their products were harmful to human health. In perspective, dietitians say there are lots of things that are bad for you, especially if you consume too much of them, and they don't expect to change their basic recommendation of a moderate and balanced diet. But now we know what the sugar industry kept from us for a very long time, so now it's up to us. Over the past year, the U.S. fell from fourth place in the world to 16th place in terms of fourth-grade reading comprehension. Reading comprehension scores in other countries have surged ahead, while American scores have plateaued for 16 years. In California, teachers are suing the state's public education system for failing to teach many of its students to read. They are not wrong, these teachers. At LaSalle Elementary in Los Angeles, only eight of the 179 students tested were found to be proficient in reading, eight out of 179. One veteran teacher says he has even used kindergarten curriculum to teach fifth graders to read. 
Meanwhile, in Florida, the Associated Press reports that a parent is trying to ban the book Fahrenheit 451 at a local school because the Ray Bradbury classic contains profanity and violence. Elsewhere in Florida, parents are fighting the teaching of evolution and global warming, demanding they be removed from all textbooks. Why this outbreak of censorship fever in Florida? It's because this year, Florida lawmakers approved a bill that allows any resident to challenge school curriculum if they feel it's pornographic, biased, or inaccurate. And not just parents, any resident of Florida. And by filing their complaints, they automatically get a hearing in front of an outside mediator. That mediator then sends his advice to the school district, and the district's decision is final, no appeal. In other words, that important literature and that important science can be erased from Florida schools because a resident didn't like what they saw in those schools. A Delta flight from New York to Seattle over the weekend made an unscheduled stop in Montana so that passengers and crew could use the restroom. The toilets stopped working on flight 453 and the passengers had long gotten their beverages on that six-hour flight. Quoting the incident report, the passengers need to go really bad. On arrival in Billings, none of the gates were available for this unexpected arrival, so the crew rolled out the stairway to passengers so motivated they could find relief on the ground below. The plane was refueled so it could make the rest of the trip to Seattle. Rock and roll is the new diplomacy. Emphasis on rock. The Prime Minister of Denmark, Lars Rasmussen, brought a gift, as world leaders often do for one another, when he visited the President of Indonesia. A box set of Metallica's Master of Puppets, on vinyl, signed by Metallica's drummer, who is also named Lars. The President of Indonesia was pleased with his gift, declaring, Prime Minister Rasmussen understands my favorite music. Indonesian President Joko Widodo is a well-known metalhead. He gave Rasmussen a ceremonial dagger. Metal on. Many listeners to this podcast will be pleased to know that acclaimed screenwriter Aaron Sorkin is once again talking about a reboot of TV's The West Wing. Martin Sheen would again have a role, but as a former president, consulting the new president, Sterling K. Brown from This Is Us and The People vs. O.J. Simpson. In response to Sorkin's comments, the Emmy-winning Brown tweeted, If you are serious, sir, I would be honored, followed by an American flag emoji. Another face that many of us grew up with has gone away. Actor and singer Jim Neighbors died this past week at the age of 87. In the 1960s, he was TV's Gomer Pyle, first as a gas station mechanic on The Andy Griffith Show, and then on his own series about a kindly hillbilly in the Marine Corps. He also had his own variety show after guesting on Sonny and Cher and Carol Burnett. Neighbors' friend Burt Reynolds put him in three movies, including Cannonball Run 2 and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Neighbors could easily switch from his higher acting voice to a rich baritone for singing, which he did on 28 albums. Five of those albums went gold, one went platinum. And Neighbors, who owned a macadamia ranch in Hawaii with his husband, sang back home again in Indiana at the Indy 500 for 42 years. Gomer would have been impressed. 
Coco was again the top movie in theaters last weekend with over 26 million additional dollars. For all the movies, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Festivus begins with the airing of grievances, as Seinfeld viewers well know. And grievances were what Santa was sent by the six-year-old son of an NPR producer who shared her son's letter to Santa this year. It begins, Dear Santa, of course. Santa, I'm only doing this for the class. I know your naughty list is empty, and your good list is empty, and your life is empty. You don't know the troubles I've had in my life. Goodbye. Love, I'm not telling you my name. As for the boy's troubles, don't call family services, says his mother, adding, he's talking about his brother. While some Americans dream of a white Christmas, some folks in Australia are just hoping it won't involve snakes. A four-year-old girl in Queensland discovered a foot-long snake in the family Christmas tree. Her mom posted a photo of it on Facebook, and the neighbors are terrified now of their own Christmas trees. Snakes are about this warmer weather, the mother writes with an exclamation mark. A good reminder, she wrote, to keep a watch out. Not for Santa, but for snakes. And it turns out words make friends. Last summer, a rapper in Harlem named Spencer was playing words with friends. You can't rap without words. See reading proficiency story above. And Spencer found himself playing someone he'd taken a liking to, an 81-year-old white Florida woman named Roz. With the help of Spencer's pastor, over the weekend, Spencer flew to West Palm Beach to meet his word friend, Roz. Pastor Amy Butler joined Spencer on the trip and took pictures that went viral when she and Spencer posted them on Twitter. The story may have ended with pictures, but it started with words. Hey, they finally found that Porsche, the one that was stolen about 27 years ago outside the Southside Cinema in Medford, Oregon, and was never seen again. A hiker found the Porsche at the bottom of a steep embankment. The bones found nearby turned out to be deer, not human. No human body has been found anywhere on that embankment. The car is wedged among many tall, narrow trees. The sheriff says getting it out is complicated. Anyway, they found the Porsche. There have been great stories in the recent past about people breaking into restaurants, usually to steal stuff and to whip up a meal. 36-year-old Alex Bowen of West Columbia, South Carolina, admits he was pretty inebriated when he stumbled into the local Waffle House for some food at 3 a.m. on a Thursday. The place was open, but there were no employees to be found anywhere. Bowen says he waited at the register for about 10 minutes and no one ever showed up. He looked outside in case the employees were on a smoke break. No, no employees outside either. So he went back into the restaurant and back into the kitchen where he found an employee sleeping. So Alex Bowen went to work on the grill where he made a Texas bacon cheesesteak melt. He ate his food, cleaned up his mess, and left. The employee never awakened and no other customers came or went during Bowen's snack attack. The next day, Alex returned to the restaurant to pay for his food. The corporate office for Waffle House, yes, there actually is one, immediately offered Bowen a job, either as a cook or as a secret shopper. Quoting the company, Alex has some cooking skills. 
Waffle House said it would also take appropriate disciplinary action against that location's staff and management. It was just before 6 a.m. in Kingston, Australia, when a masked man pulled up to an adult entertainment store, got out of his white Ford van carrying a pair of bolt cutters, and broke into the store. No money was taken. Security video shows the man leaving with a five-foot-six sex doll. And finally, so an opossum walks into a liquor store. From the home office in Florida, Dateline Fort Walton Beach on the Emerald Coast, a female opossum was found on a shelf next to a bottle of liquor that was completely empty, having been cracked open. Quoting an expert from the local wildlife refuge, the marsupial wasn't acting normal. The refuge gave the animal lots of fluids, and two days later, the opossum was back to normal and released back into the wild. And no wonder it took two days to recover. Quoting a clerk at the liquor store, she drank the whole damn bottle. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.